Good morning. Thank you, Eric. If you take notes, the sermon's title today is called Mountain Time. We have come to the end of Epiphany, a season dedicated to the revelation of Jesus, not only as a teacher and a prophet, but as Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, fully God, fully man. And today we join the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration. And we join Elijah at Mount Horeb, or which is also known as Sinai. And we look from this own mountaintop to another mountaintop to come in a few weeks from Golgotha, Calvary, as we come into Lent this week. We look forward to the resurrection, and we take this moment before we go into the valley, into the wilderness of the Lenten season, to remember where we are headed, to let the future come into the present, and pull all of our past and hold that in this wonderful, beautiful tension. The mountains in the scriptures are the places that are, they're a little different. They're the places where heaven and earth meet. They're thin spaces where dimensions of reality overlap, where we enter God's space. This is exactly what happens when Moses goes up the mountain in Sinai, where he sees the burning bush, and all of a sudden he sees something transfigured. Nature itself begins to pulsate with God's glory, and divine revelation comes forward as he experiences the living God. And likewise, as the cloud of glory would descend in the Exodus upon the mountain, and the revelation of Torah, the law, was given. A little allusion to that comes in our transfiguration passage today. On the sixth day, they went up to the mountain. In Exodus 24, after six days on the mountain, the glory of God descends on Moses and the elders. But there's more happening here. Time is different. Time on the mountains is different. This is literally true. I know many of you are very smart people, so you probably already knew this, but I discovered this week that gravity affects time, and that Einstein already knew that, but gravity affects time on mountains so that technically you age faster at the top of a mountain than you do at sea level. Milliseconds, it's very, very small. So, but if you spend 10 years at the top of a mountain, you will age faster than you would here at sea level. So stay low you'll stay young. <laughs> but I think there's a more important truth here than just the physical. A sense in which time and space is different on the mountains, and the seasons that we are called to join God at the mountain offer us a different way of telling time, of understanding space, in a sense, reality. The way that the scripture often discusses time is through the word chronos, chronological, the time that is sequential. This is, as Heidegger said, clock time, countdown, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. This is how you organize your schedule. This is how you think about the hours of the day, how much sunlight there is. Maybe you organize it by breakfast, lunch, and dinner, some of you. Or maybe you live by the school calendar because that's your profession or that's you know when you have enough kids that can commandeer everything else or you live by the nine to five office schedule, or you look forward to your month off in the summer. And so you live by certain calendars and those, that's chronos, everyday sequential time. But a different kind of time occurs on the mountain space and a different kind of reality is understood here. 
So I want to show you a picture on the next slide. This is from the James Webb Telescope. Some of you have probably seen some of these pictures already. And this is the cosmic cliffs of the Carina Nebula. What you're looking at is the edge of a gigantic gaseous cavity 7,600 light years away, which is carved by the nebula's uh, ultraviolet radiation and solar winds. And there are millions of stars pictured. And while all of that is true, as you look at this, I assume, as maybe I do, you feel this, there's, there's something more that that explanation just does not really satisfy what you're looking at. There's something deeper that you're feeling, experiencing when you look at something. The same reason that I can tell you that my wife is very beautiful and that you, I could explain that, that that's symmetry and genetics, but it doesn't explain the smile and the, and the feeling that you have as you look into the person you love. In our Western world, we have privileged a certain way of explaining reality that is mechanistic, that is intellectual, that is material, that is bound by chronos, by time and this order. And in some of your cultures that are not as Western, you may have not lost that the world is enchanted, that there are layers to creation, layers to reality. We call that spiritual life that there is more than what meets the eye. And uh, what happens at the transfiguration is the mountain, time and space opens up for the disciples that reality is much deeper, more terrifying than they could understand. And when we look in the face of the one we love or we witness something like this, or think of those moments where something feels deeper than you can put words to, we are discovering a little bit of what the transfiguration reveals to us. Reality is opened up. Reality is not what they know the disciples every day. Reality is the mountain. Jesus is fully revealed there. The resurrection, the glory that they will once know or come, that they will understand and we will know in the second coming, appears in their present. And as T.S. Eliot said, human beings can only handle so much reality. He meant it in a bit of a negative sense of self-deception, but I think it rings true here that what we often assume is reality is far, it's more of an illusion than we understand. Dante, at the end of his Paradiso, wrote that love, the love which moves the sun and all stars. That explanation touches something different than this is a gaseous cavity that has been shaped by stellar winds. And not that that's not that those are untruth statements, but there's another layer of understanding the world around us. We have privileged that understanding. We have privileged what Charles Taylor called the imminent frame. This is all that there is. A world that's flat and one-dimensional. And we can be Christians, we can be Bible-believing Christians and still be deists in a sense and live as if God is not present and that the world is not more beautiful and enchanted and deeply, mysteriously complex. And if we treat human beings that way and reduce them to just behavior, reduce them to genetics, and reduce human beings to basically what is objects, we will lose what makes life most beautiful. So how do we address the slavery of Kronos, as some have called it? 
Well, the Bible talks about a different kind of time called kairos. And again, I apologize to my wife, who I've really butchered the Greek pronunciations for. Kairos, chronos. But kairos time is seasonal. And it could just mean like winter and summer, but there's something deeper to that sense in which kairos time, and I think I have a slide which shows both chronos and kairos here. Kairos time is a fullness of time, to use Bible language. It's a time that's charged in a way that cannot be measured. It is the intersection of the eternal with the temporal. It's when time and space, as we know it, opens up. Where there's the intersection of God's presence with our sense, our sense of uh, time itself. What this means is that there is a God, God exists outside of time, so kind of stay with me here. And there are moments as we live our daily mundane, ordinary lives, getting up, brushing your teeth, making breakfast, doing, having coffee, making lunch, going to work. We go through these ordinary moments, but beneath the surface of that, God is moving and living, and Kairos time is when God awakens us that reality is going on much deeper than what we are living in now. And because of that, the moments that are so powerful of Scripture, the giving of the Torah, as we read about a bit, or mentioned earlier, Elijah on the mountain, more importantly, Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit, these moments, we are not further from them because another day has passed. You are not 2,000 and so many days or years away from those moments. In the Eucharist that we take, we are reliving that moment you are no further from these experiences and events than the disciples who witnessed them are because god is not bound by time and kairos time which is the time of god can surpass and transcends and intersect and open our chronos life so that as we come to the table later in a few moments you are not remembering something that happened two thousand years ago you're reliving something that is happening forever. Christ is crucified, risen, and coming again all at once. Now, that might seem a bit abstract. There's another picture I want to bring up here to capture what Christian time looks like. This is a painting by El Greco. It is called The Burial of the Count of Orgaz, and in it you will see the Count being buried. He's being buried by St. Stephen, who was the first martyr. And on the other side, there's Augustine. Augustine's wearing the, the bishop stuff, the, the tall hat. And you'll notice Augustine is older. He died older, but Augustine also lives centuries after Stephen. And so there's a little bit of a time is bent in this moment for a second. Stephen, the, who's technically older, is younger. Augustine is older, but younger. And together they bury, they come together centuries apart, they bury this count, and above them are the nobility of Toledo, and then above that is the heavens. And you see the, the, the saints of old, you see Mary and John the Baptist, and you see Christ ascended and risen at the top. And the heavens are open, and you can, if you look closely, you'll even see the soul of the count going up to the resurrection. What you're seeing is how we understand what we're doing in liturgy, in Christian life, and all of these things. Time is bent Heaven and earth have come together. This is a picture of a mountain, even though there's no rocky elevation here. A spiritual mountain. Heaven and earth are bending together. And as the glory of the resurrection, the light is shining forth, all those who've turned their face toward it, they themselves are glorified. The future touches the present. 
just as the resurrection reaches into the tomb and our tombs and the heaven above is a future to come a future that is now the light of the future illuminates all the faces looking toward it in the present time is folded and bent to put it another way what we're doing now as we enter lent is looking beyond lent even to the resurrection we are letting the future break into our present holding together our past now this might seem tangential so again bear with me when we read the transfiguration story this morning on the sixth day they go up again if you know the bible seven days of creation six days of crucifixion eighth day new creation we're at this point where we're looking over towards that moment coming secondly there's no mountain named traditionally it's mount tabor there's a good argument that it's mount Hermon, but you can read about that and argue about it later but peter says it when peter describes it he doesn't give it a name he just says the holy mountain because this mountain is universal for our experience and in this moment our future and our past are held together jesus is speaking with elijah and with moses two people very familiar with the mountains right the past all that has been israel's history caught up in the present and the glory that is god eternal and the resurrection shining in that moment and they are caught between the past and the present and what i believe that means for you today and for us is that we too stand here with our past and our future in front of us and many of us are beholden to our past we we do not realize that the things that we've experienced and lived through they have set our future for us and that's the whole question of nature and nurture right how much is predestined of our future well we here as christians believe that our future has predestined our past in a sense our future which is to be glorified with christ to ourselves be transformed and transfigured orients our present and brings up our past so that what has happened to us and the scars and the wounds are like christ they are healed and they come and they become opportunities of god's glory reflections of his great witness The next slide, there are two quotes I, I really appreciate here. Life must be understood backwards, but it must also be lived forward. It's Kierkegaard. And secondly, we only know our beginning by investigating our end. It's Maximus the Confessor. All of this might seem a bit abstract and philosophical, but what it really means is that we are to hold in front of us our great future, the resurrection. Easter must be at the forefront of us. We do not pretend to walk through Lent as if Christ did not rise. We, we do not have to trick ourselves. We hold that in front of us now, like the transfiguration, to know that as we enter into the season of Lent, into that Kairos season of repentance, that this is where we're headed to glory, to be ourselves transformed. And in that process, we too can be transformed. A very practical example of what I mean about Kairos and Kronos, and we'll come to a close very shortly. Seven years ago, I took a trip to Thailand right after being offered a very, the job I had I'd kind of been seeking for two years. And right after I was offered this job, there was a big scandal at the church I was at, and I was quite dismayed. A bit like Elijah, who had 
gone to the mountain, Mount Carmel, challenged the prophets of Baal, had this huge victory, walks into the capital of Jezreel the next day, basically, has Jezebel say, nothing's changed, I'm going to kill you. And maybe you've had that experience. There's just a lot of great success. Think you're going to ride in on a white horse the next day. No, no one cared. Nothing changed. And you find yourself here at that moment, a bit in despair. So Elijah asks God to kill him, basically. He says, take my life. Goes to the wilderness, won't eat, has to be fed by angels. Gets to the mountain, is pouting a bit. But he goes back to the place where God started everything for Israel. He's stuck in the past, in a sense. He goes backward. And so, like, too, I didn't know what to do. I found a place to go to rest, the Jesuit retreat center, and tried to discern what I should do next. And I spent four days in that beginning, just re I read through all the Gospels, I read everything I could, I, I couldn't rest, relax, and finally something broke, and I sat there in this garden, and I, the Lord looked, I saw a tree, and the Lord used the tree, not a burning bush, but a tree to give me a word of what I should do next. And a moment, an ordinary moment, just sitting in this garden, became a Kairos moment that would change my life. That wouldn't have happened if I weren't quiet. If, like Elijah, I hadn't been sitting and waiting for the whisper of the Lord. Peter stands on the mountain and says some ridiculous things. Let's stay here. Build some tabernacles. This is the holy place. Let's, this is good. And unlike Elijah, he says the present, this is, an, where this is wonderful. This is exactly where I want to be, and let's never change. But Jesus looks forward to Calvary. And we, too, are encouraged not to remain in the past, nor hold on to the present, but allow time to intersect with God's future now and to let every moment of Kronos become a moment of Kairos. We're going to do that here at the Eucharist. We're going to do that in our liturgy. And I, I just want to uh, give you some practical things how you can do that right now. Last two minutes, and you can skip to my last slide. In the liturgy, we let time collapse, but also in our daily lives, and as we come into Lent, I want to encourage you, there are a few ways in which you can say no to Kronos and open yourself up to Kairos. First is the daily office. If you're not familiar, that's in our Book of Common Prayer. We have morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, compline. It's based off the five types of, times of prayer that David uh, discusses. But it's really a sense in which we say, uh, my schedule does not revolve around school calendars, around meal times, around this. My job is to be with the Lord, hence office. It's, it's not that you ignore the other schedules of your life, but it's to make sure that throughout your day, your life is to be in communion, in relationship to God. So I want to encourage you this Lent. I'm going to send out those times of prayer, but I'm not telling you to follow this liturgy, but make space in which you are able to listen and acknowledge that there's a deeper reality happening in all of the ordinary things you have to get done. That laundry and cooking and office and emails, none of it has to be secular. It can be sacred. If you pause and remember. The same with Sabbath. When we celebrate Sundays as our Sabbath, and I'm not telling you to be legalistic and you know, don't touch elevator buttons and kind of things on the Sabbath as they do in Israel. But to allow that day, a day a week, or to create some, you can create, you can be flexible. I like to take the first hour of my day and not touch the computer and respond to emails. And it's actually really hard. 
I want to do it, or check my phone and find out what that. But taking those first few moments, say, my life is not going to depend on being quick to answer this. It is rarely an emergency whether I have an email that morning. I don't know what that might be for you, but there's a way in which we center our time, not around the schedules of this world. Thirdly, I want to encourage you that to try fasting if you've not done it. And if you have, I encourage you to keep doing it. But during Lent, we fast. And this is, a, we say, in a sense, we say no to the desires and cravings of our life and say yes to God. We make space to encounter the living God. Uh, now, everybody should probably fast. Not everybody has to do it the same way. And I'm just going to encourage you to kind of pray about what that might look like for you. Um, and that's going to be a Lenten conversation we have. But I want to encourage you that we do not live by the hungers of this life. It's to help us identify the cravings and desires of this life. And lastly, silence. It's easy to think that God is always in the loud and the noise and those big moments. And the transfiguration seems like that, but all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are gone. The luminosity is gone. And it's just Jesus there with them. It's just Jesus. And Lent is sometimes about stripping everything down to just Jesus. And so I want to end this service, or this, we have a lot left, but end the sermon with a moment of silence and ask you the question that Elijah was asked. What are you doing here? I think that is a good Lenten question. What are you doing here? What past has brought you here? What moments of the present have brought you here? But do not stay there and hear the second part. As we listen, as we take a few moments of silence, listen to him. Those are the words that the Father speaks about Jesus to the disciples. Listen to him. So if you'll join me just in a few moments of silence and in a posture your heart in that same way that this few moments in this McGill campus in the middle of Montreal, in your busy Sunday, Kronos can be converted to Kairos now. Come, Lord Jesus, come.